Hello and welcome back to the official Saster podcast. We are back for another week in the land of SAS with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at Saster, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. But to the show today, and we welcome a past 20-minute VC guest to the show today, who was so exceptional that we had to have him on Saster. Yes, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Suster to the show today. Mark is a managing partner at Upfront Ventures, which he joined in 2007, having previously worked with Upfront for nearly eight years as a two-time entrepreneur, before joining Upfront, Mark was Vice President of Product Management at Salesforce, following its acquisition of Coral, where Mark was founder and CEO. Prior to Coral, Mark was founder and CEO of Build Online, a European SaaS company that was acquired by Sword Group. Mark is also the writer of one of my favourite VC blogs, Both Sides of the Table, which is a centrepiece to the whole VC community and is a must-read for all interested in VC and entrepreneurship. I also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the introduction today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform, and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web, with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversion build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all SASTA listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. And once you have many great reviews with Reviews.io, you'll be able to pitch VCs. And that's where Slidebean comes in. Slidebean allows you to create stunning, professionally designed sales decks in minutes, not hours. Over 2,500 companies have used Slidebean's presentation tools to successfully pitch their business to notable VC firms around the world. You can create a free account and start designing your pitch deck today at slidebean.com forward slash SASTA. Once you're ready to unlock your presentation, use the offer code SASTA, S-A-A-S-T-R, to save 10% off your first purchase. Slidebean, presentations made simple. You must check it out. But it's now time for me to shut up and to hand over to the one and only Mark Suster, managing partner at Upfront Ventures. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Mark, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, and a huge thanks for joining me today, Mark. Harry, I'm always happy to be here. I'd love to get the ball rolling this day and start, for anyone who hasn't heard your 20-minute VC interview, with a little on you and how you made your way into investing and VC to start with. Uh, There is no immediate, easy path into venture capital because there is no career path. The one path that some people take, it's the path that I took, is to be an entrepreneur first. So I built two SaaS software companies, the first starting in 1999 and the second starting in 2005. Both of them got sold to public companies. The first I built in Europe, it was called Build Online. We sold it to a company called the Sword Group in France, a publicly listed company in France. The second I sold to Salesforce.com where I became VP of product. And after I left Salesforce, when I was thinking about starting my third company, my now venture capital fund, Upfront Ventures, reached out and asked if I wanted to be a partner. And the rest is history. It's been 10 years now. And what better way to start, though, than with a question from Jason Lampkin, who asks, what were your top learnings from being a VP at Salesforce in those really crazy hyper-growth days? 
Well, you know, the question about what are my biggest lessons learned from Salesforce as a product guy, I'm going to give you one crazy insight and tip that was exactly reverse of what I would have expected. And I'm going to give you a second tip also. So my first tip is this. When I was pricing software, I always had the mentality to price as low as you can, get as much adoption as you can. And then over time, you would find ways to add features and upsell your customers. That was always what I was taught. Salesforce had a different mentality. Their mentality was to price high and discount. And there were really two reasons for doing this. One is the psychology of buying. Most of the people who are listening to the show probably really have never been salespeople before, have never been professional purchasers before, and probably don't understand the psychology of buying. The psychology of buying is no matter who you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how senior you are in an organization, everyone wants to feel like they got a discount. They want to feel like they weren't being fleeced. So if I go to buy a car and the car costs $40,000, and if I end up purchasing it for $38,000, I feel better as long as I feel like I didn't do something stupid. If I later found out that everyone else bought it for $34,000, of course, I'll feel stupid. And people hate when they go in to buy something for $40,000, and by the time they leave, they paid $48,000. So Salesforce's strategy, as far as I could tell, was keep your price high and discount. And that helps customers through a negotiation process feel like they're getting, these are my words, a pound of flesh. And I always tell people everybody wants to get a pound of flesh. And if you go to both sides of the table and you Google pound of flesh, I've written a lot about this before in terms of how to negotiate. Number two is it's impossible to increase price. Once you lock in a price, customers hate paying more than that because they perceive that as the value. If you charge $59 a user a month, try ever raising that to $79 a user a month, and you'll see you know, mass protests in your community. The beautiful thing about pricing high, let's say $150 a user a month, and then offering discounts is over time, it's easier to reduce the amount of discount that you apply to a sale. And therefore, in a way, you're increasing price without people perceiving it. And everyone buying still feels like they got great value. I wish we lived in a world where I could just say price X is what everybody pays. It doesn't work well with human psychology. The second message I want to leave people with here, Harry, is everybody is assumes that Salesforce.com didn't care about professional services because they don't have a big professional services business. And frankly, that's just not true. In the earliest days, Salesforce had a philosophy, and that philosophy was customer success. And you could only build a great company if you had customer success because the number one rule of scaling sales is referenceability. And if you go and you sell a bunch of software and you expect clients to implement it fully and get value out of it themselves. Without your help, you're fooling yourself. So in the early days of building a software company, you really need to put professional services against it. Most VCs will tell you not to. Most VCs are wrong. And what putting professional services means, number one, it means that you are more likely to have customer success and therefore referenceability and therefore future scalability. Number two, it's much easier to sell new product to existing customers than selling to totally new customers. So if you have professional services, you have people 
on the ground who can help you land and expand. Number three, it's a great profitable, scalable, early day revenue source for you. You're not going to be at 80% gross margin. You're going to be at 35 to 50% margin, but that can be meaningful cash to your business. And it's something that customers are willing to pay for in the early days, whether it's custom code, whether it's integration work, whether it's strategy, whether it's training. Now, here's the thing. Over time, as you scale, you just can't become reliant upon that revenue. It can't become crack cocaine. And so what happened to Salesforce is they had a reasonably big professional services organization until after they went public. After they went public, Wall Street started holding their feet to the fire over gross margin and pointing out that this business wasn't profitable enough. So what they did is it's not like they abandoned it. They spun it out and then they funded a whole ecosystem of professional services businesses with their cash to help drive customer success for Salesforce clients. So I should stop there or I may take the entire interview with no questions. Let me stop. <laughs> I, do, I, do. I want to ask though, two questions straight, straight off the bat there. When's the right time to implement a customer success team in an early stage SaaS startup? One, and then should they be upselling themselves or should it be transferred over to a sales rep? So number one, the immediate time is when you found your company. Now, as it turns out, your head of sales when you found a SaaS company is you as the CEO. Number two, your head of customer success when you found the company is you. And the person who has to spend time in the client domain is you. So the reason I say that is there are way too many product people who found companies who don't really love working in the customer domain and they'd rather sit in their office and tinker with technology. And that's a terrible way to build a SaaS company because you need to actually be in the customer domain. Why? Because number one, you're going to understand what their true business pain is and how well you do it solving that. Number two, you're going to build an understanding of how implementation goes and how people actually use your software ultimately. Number three, you're going to understand that software does not exist in a vacuum. Software has to work with all sorts of other systems. So understanding who and how to integrate with other systems is critical. And then finally, you build the relationships you need to scale revenue. The second question, you asked me is, is it a sales rep or is it the person on the ground? In sales, there are hunters and there are farmers. Hunters are people who like to go out and win new logos. That's how they're wired. That's what they like doing. That's the challenge. That's the excitement. And they like getting all the money and glory associated when they win. And they understand that they're the first people sacked if they miss their targets. Farmers don't really love sales. They're the people who love customers and they want to spend time with their clients, making their clients win. And if your company wins at the same time, they feel great. Understanding the difference between hunters and farmers is incredibly important. And in the early days, I'd probably err on slightly more farmers than hunters. You said there about the importance of logos. I had Bill Binch on the show before, and he said the importance of getting as many logos as you can in the early days. What's your thoughts on simply logo hunting and getting as many as you can versus going for your Dropbox box Salesforce as a client? What's the thoughts around kind of the different processes there? So I don't know the kind context of your discussion with this individual. So I don't want to say that they're completely wrong because context matters. But in the context that I'm talking, I could think of no worse advice. 
the idea of getting as many logos as you can may make for a nice fundraising deck or pitch deck, but it doesn't make for a great company. Because if you get as many logos as you can, what you're assuring yourself is superficial adoption of what you do. I would much rather have fewer clients, but make a meaningful difference to their business. If you make a meaningful difference to important clients, great things will happen. In terms of those important clients and and selling into them, you've often written before about calling high or low. Uh, So I want to talk about this. And for scaling SaaS startups, how should they evaluate this dilemma of whether they are actually speaking to uh, someone who can make those important executive decisions and the real signs that they are talking to a purchaser? Well, there's two different ways I want to divide the question. One is call high versus call low. And two is, are you speaking to someone who can purchase? Call high. I'm a big believer in life and call as high as you can. It's okay to call high and get passed down because when you get call high and get passed down, the people talking to you know that there's a certain degree of air cover in the conversation. The more senior people you're talking to, the less likely your project will get canceled, the more likely you'll find budget, the more likely you'll find executive support, the more likely you'll be able to kill off the people who are trying to see your project die. So I don't know, like I always say, some people like to keep their heads below the parapet hoping not to get shot. I just don't believe that's a great strategy because ultimately when you roll up one level, two level, three levels, and you find out that the firm has different initiatives in mind, that's the quickest way for your project ultimately to get canceled. Senior people can write big checks that are meaningless in the scheme of their budgets. Whereas often when you get stuck at middling levels, you're stuck both with small budgets and with people who are worried about the career impact of what they're doing. So call as high as you can. Number two, how do you know if you're talking to a purchaser? So um, again, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff on sales on both sides of the table in which I talk about something called the NINA. NINA for me stands for no influence and no authority. Uh, Nina's love to talk to people. So people who are not trained in sales, people who are not uh, cogent thinkers, love to spend time with Nina's because Nina's spend time with you. You don't want to go into a client and just spend tons of time with the person who will spend time talking with you because that doesn't equal a buyer. What you want to do is, first of all, identify whether or not your potential client has a problem. That's the first step in sales. Is there a need, number one? And I call that why buy anything? And if I can't figure out how how to get somebody who has a problem to buy something, then I should never be in a startup in the first place. Number two is why buy me? Why buy me is how I differentiate relative to every other solution on the market. And if I go see customers early in the process, then I get to define why they should, what are the criteria for how they should select software. If I get an RFP with 85 different things I need to do in order to win this account, trust me, one of your competitors was in there defining the requirements. Your chance of winning is very small if you just get in over the transom RFP. And the last question, the one that kills most sales is why buy now? Because most people, even if they have a need, even if they realize that you do something better than other people, there's just no super compelling event for them to have to buy now. And have to buy now means you can identify either major sales losses from them not having your software or major cost cuts they're going to get 
or some competitive advantage or disadvantage or some regulatory reason they need to buy what you're selling. And the real mistake that most people make at SaaS companies is they feel squeamish to ask these things. So I am like a detailed, pedantic motherfucker. I will say to people, okay, so you want to do this project. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We're so grateful. I'm ready to line up a team to do this, but I'm a startup. I have limited resources. So if I'm going to make big commitments of resources to making your project successful, I kind of really just want to understand a little more of the lay of the land. So, okay, you're asking me to engage with you on this project. Are you the purchaser? Do you have budget? And most people hate to utter those words because it's kind of embarrassing. It's like saying, you know, do you have permission to buy? But do you have budget is a very fair question asked in a very polite way. Will they be honest with you? I find most people are honest, but it's your job. If you ask 100 people if you have budget and you're looking them eyeball to eyeball, none of this chicken shit email stuff, like eyeball to eyeball or voice to voice, and you watch their reaction, you'll know the difference between whether they really have budget or not. I mean, intuitively, we all know you go into a shop and there's a retail worker and the retail worker starts showing stuff. And if they see you like turning over the tags, looking at prices all the time, they know that you're a value shopper, right? Like there's signals, like it's not hard. This is not rocket science, but you say like, do you have budget? And they say, yes, I do. And they say, wonderful. So help me understand, like in order to get approval for this budget, because we know it's going to cost about $50,000, which is not a lot of money, but it is for some people. And, you know, I'd never like to assume things. So if you got approval for 50,000, do you need to check with someone in finance? Oh, you don't have to check with finance. Okay. So you have the budget. Uh, Does anyone in legal need to sign off on this? Does anyone in tech need to sign off on? Are you a hundred percent in control of the decision? And then what you find is often there are groups of people who make decisions and it drives me crazy. The lack of details that most CEOs and salespeople get in a process. So I'll say things like, which is not unsurprising. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example. Recently, like, you know, we raise funds too. And uh, one of the things we do when we raise funds is, you know, we have to go talk to people who will potentially invest in our funds. And I had somebody who said they wanted to give me $10 million. And I said, okay, typically the people who invest in VC funds have something called an investment committee. And I said, very simply, like, Who's on the investment committee? Are you on the investment committee? Oh, you're on the investment committee and there's two other people. Do those two other people tend to get involved in the decision or do they tend to defer to you? Oh, they defer to you. You say you've got absolute authority. Okay. So when is the IC meeting? When's the next IC meeting? If I hear pause, like I don't know, that tells me there's not a clear process. If they say to me, our next IC meeting is May the 23rd. I've got two other people there. And then I will say things like, do you plan to advocate for us? And then I stop because in sales, I want to listen more than I talk. I mean, today uh, I'm being interviewed. I'm talking more than listening. But I always tell people, be careful about being a crocodile salesperson. I loved your snap snap story on this. This was one of yeah, my favorites. Crocodile snap, like people with huge mouth and small ears. And the goal in, in a customer conversation is to ask questions and then stop and then listen and let them talk and talk and talk. So if I say, do you plan to advocate for us? And then silence. And let me just listen to what they say and let me fit, let them finish talking. Like I don't want to jump in and ruin their train of thought. But in having a conversation where you're super polite about it, I mean, in a, 
in this interview where I'm frenzied and on coffee and trying to race through it, I sound more urgency than I would at the time. But it's your job to ask 50 polite questions, listen to all the answers. And at the end of that call, you will get a sense for how much uh, influence that person has, how much authority that person has, whether or not they're a supporter, whether or not they're on the fence, whether or not they're leaning against. And then you've got to do that call to six or seven people in a buying organization until you figure out the lay of the land. Absolutely. No, I, I agree with you. I'd love to move into a quick fire round there. We call it Mark 60 Seconds Faster. It's just for you. Okay. How does that sound? Sounds great. So what should the first sales reps be really good at? The first sale in any SaaS company is a consultative sale. They need to be better at defining and quantifying customer need than anything else they do. IPO markets, frothy or fantastic? IPO markets are curious whether or not there should be a lot more tech IPOs, and they are testing the waters, and they don't yet know how they fail. Where do early-stage SaaS startups go wrong most often in your experience? In sales. They most often build product assuming that it's going to solve a problem. They most often ask customers to pilot the software. They start piloting and they most often assume that clients piloting software will get the most out of it. You need to be better at sales. You need to be better at consulting. You need to be better at understanding customer needs. And you need to go actually make this thing stick. Where do you stand on calling high and low in venture? Is it worth skipping the associates and analysts and going straight for a GP? Does it equivalate? Well, look, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't say I always believe in calling high. Calling high in a venture firm, let's say at the partner level, don't always assume that the managing partner is the best person for you. What you want to understand at a VC firm is who's got capacity, who's got clout, can they get a deal done, who's active in the sector, and will they advocate for you? If you can't get direct to them, it's not a bad idea to build a relationship with associates because those people can be your internal champions and advocates. They can help you understand the lay of the land. They can also be great networks for you for the next 10 years. And by the way, if you get to know a bunch of associates, guess what? In five years, a bunch of them will be partners. So you know, my view is be nice to everyone, spend time with everyone, call as high as you can, and make sure to build both high relationships and across VC organizations. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time in VC with Upfront? Wow, that's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what do I know now? It's much harder than people think. I'm going to give you one specific, okay? When you fund a company, that's like the glory days, like the early stage of a software company, everything feels great. They're getting their beta clients, they're winning, they're getting revenue, they're getting press and attention. When you raise a big round, make sure that company's really ready for it. I have been involved with three companies in the last 10 years that raised really large rounds. They weren't quite ready for it. We weren't quite clear on customer economics. We weren't quite clear on product market fit. We weren't quite clear on our own sales and marketing efficiency. And so when we poured on a bunch of money, all we did is inefficiently spend it. And if you don't take the money and massively scale, what you do is you set a super high valuation for yourself, you burn through cash, and then you create this weird dynamic where the person who wrote you 20, 30 million, 40 million dollars, then is at odds with the people who wrote you one or two or three million dollars, because the person who wrote you 30 million dollars realizes you're not going to 
quickly be a multi-billion dollar company and they start to lose interest. And if you need more money, you know, you've got to get more money out of them because at your current burn rate that you've levered yourself up to, it becomes really hard to get the early guys to participate. And I've seen it enough times to know it's a classic mistake. You said there about the scaling process, moving out of the quick fire, so no worries on the 60 seconds. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the key inflection points that you see in terms of company development as they scale from 10 to 20 to ever exponential scaling processes. What are the key inflection points where things really change in a company uh, process and cycle? Well, I always say that in an early stage startup, most of what you have is tacit knowledge and informal process. So people who start companies are chaotic, not process-driven, don't follow the rules. And if they did, they probably wouldn't start a company. And those people are great for the first three or four years, but they are not always the right people to help you get your company to the next level. And there becomes that weird inflection point where process matters a lot. So for example, if I take sales and marketing and where the two two intersect, starting to build a, a predictable marketing process where you do demand generation, you do marketing qualified leads, you have reps that are trying to identify whether or not it makes sense to spend with these accounts, having a salesperson qualify whether or not there's a buyer. Those things matter a lot as you try to scale because on the other side, you're going to hire expensive sales reps and you need to get productivity out of them. And if they're wasting times on the Patel leads rather than the Glengarry leads, you're going to end up with a group of people who are not are getting paid a lot and not closing the right level of sales. So it it is hard. And the other thing is, I talked about tacit knowledge. When everybody was here at the foundation, there were 15 people and we all went in front of customers and we all kind of knew how to sell and how to compete with our competition. When you get to 60, 80, 100 people, those people don't have tacit knowledge. So then you have to invest more. I guess people call it sales enablement. Uh, I call it arming and aiming. So arming is creating great marketing materials that help people in your organization understand the key pain that customers have, the key value drivers of what your software does, understanding the competition and how to sell against them, understanding overall the competitive dynamics. And aiming is equally important. So in the early days, you might talk to any customers. As you hire sales reps, you've got to either verticalize them or make them geographic or split them based on customer size. But they need to know these are your targets. These are ones, twos, and threes. The ones are the people I expect you to close this quarter. The twos are the people who you can have two to three quarters. And the threes, you better not fucking call them because those are now marketing leads. And marketing is going to tickle those over the next few quarters until such time as they become buyers. When they become buyers, then they go back to you. And if you don't aim sales reps, then they wander aimlessly because what they really want to do is go into salesforce.com, put in all of their forecasts and tell you everything's rosy. And if their current number ones are not going as well as they'd like to, they'll just stuff in a bunch of threes and they'll tell you that they're real leads. But the problem is then you roll up this forecast and you think your next two or three quarters sales are going to go well and you find out there was too much froth in there. And and I do want to discuss one final element before I let you go today. And it's just the element of the exit scenario. You've written before about how tough any good M&A offer is. So my question to you is, if I can sell for 50 to 100, 
hundred million dollars. When should I? When should I say no? Or when should I go for it? What's your perspective on on pulling the trigger? Everybody assumes fifty to hundred million dollars is what you do when you fail. And as long as we have great IP, we'll just sell the fifty to hundred. Fifty to hundred is fucking hard, right? It's hard to sell a company at any price. And the sooner you understand that, the sooner you're going to build a better company. Number one is not relying upon M&A or a quick exit. Number two is not assuming these things happen by accident. When people buy an early stage startup company that doesn't have hundreds of millions of revenues, usually what they're buying is you. They're buying you because they think I've got a problem. I can solve it a little bit with the software that I'm going to buy here. I'm going to get access to either customers or R&D or innovation or some IP that you have, but I'm going to get Sally. I'm going to get Bob. I'm going to get this person who I think can help me in my organization. I mean, if I if I say things like Salesforce buying Quip, why do they buy Quip? Not because of revenue, certainly not because of revenue. The goal is how do I get access to these geniuses that can build online tools to help me better compete in the online world against Google and Microsoft and everybody else uh, in the mobile ecosystem? And almost all early stage acquisitions, if they can't imagine slotting you into their organization, you are either not going to get acquired or you're going to get acquired for a significantly limited price. So what you need to be doing at your company is building relationships, business development relationships, updating people about what your product does, staying on their radar screen. And it could be years before they suddenly realize this is a problem that I have that's worth me taking this off the table. But no M&A happens by accident. Absolutely, Mark. But it's been such a pleasure, as always, to chat. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Harry. And sorry if my 60-second lightning round is three-minute lightning round, but it's just who I am. Always so fantastic to chat to Mark and a big hand to him for giving up the time today to join us on the show. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings. You can follow Mark on Snapchat too at msuster. That really is a must. Or you can follow the man behind all things Sasta, Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter. We'd all love to see you on those respective platforms. But before we leave you today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business. And that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all Sasta listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. And once you have many great reviews with Reviews.io, you'll be able to pitch VCs. And that's where Slidebean comes in. Slidebean allows you to create stunning, professionally designed sales decks in minutes, not hours. Over 2,500 companies have used Slidebean's presentation tools to successfully pitch their businesses to notable VC firms around the world. You can create a free account and start designing your pitch deck today at slidebean.com forward slash Sasta. Once you're ready to unlock your presentation, use the offer code Sasta, S-A-A-S-T-R, to save 10% off your first purchase. Slidebean, presentations made simple. You must check it out. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.